<clears throat> All right, Ephesians chapter 3, we have arrived at this prayer uh, at the end of chapter 3, and really at the end of this first section of Ephesians. Um, and uh, if you notice, and I hope you have your Bibles open so that you can see it, um, I was talking with somebody this morning about how I'm, I'm a visual learner, not an auditory learner, and so I've got to be able to see it and really to, to kind of get it. So I want to encourage you to, to be able to see it, to have your Bibles opened here, and you'll notice that Verse 1 in verse 14 begins with this same phrase, for this reason. Um, And this is on purpose. It's not a coincidence. Paul repeats this phrase in verse 14 to signify that he's done with this side comment. So the last two weeks, we've looked at Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. um, and, And we've talked about how this is a digression. Um, This is a sidebar. It's a side comment. And so um, what Paul uh, signifies for the hearer and the the reader um, by writing again, verse 14, for this reason is that he's getting back on track. So one could read verse 1 and then transition right into verse 14. So you could read it this way. For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, kneel before the Father. Verse 1 does not have a verb. Because remember, again, he digresses. It's a side comment. And so now the verb comes back into play here in verse 14. Now, when you're studying or reading a a letter um, like Ephesians, it's good to constantly remind ourselves that Paul is writing this letter from prison. Um, There's four of these in the New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul writes all of these from prison. And so anytime you're you're, you're reading one of these letters, it's good to just constantly kind of remind yourself of the context. In fact, from what he tells us here in verse 1, he's in prison specifically for the sake of the Gentiles. In other words, he's in prison because he has been making plain the mystery of Christ. That through the gospel, the Gentiles are to be made members together with Israel. And evidently, he's been making that mystery a little too plain. Uh, And this is why he's in prison. There's been tremendous, we read in Acts about the tremendous backlash to his ministry. The Jewish opposition alone gets him arrested in Jerusalem. He spends two years in prison in Caesarea, two more years in prison in Rome. So at the time of, this, of the writing of this letter, he's been in prison for about four years for the sake of the Gentiles. Uh, another way would, of saying that, I think Paul would say, for the sake of the church, he's been in prison. And it's important to note that. And it's important to note that Paul was not in prison because the Jews were against the Gentiles hearing the gospel. That's not the problem. 
He was in prison because the Jews did not want to become members of one body together with the Gentiles. That's the reason. And so when he writes, for this reason, that's the reason. This is the reason that brings him to his knees before the Father. Paul knows firsthand. He has experienced the difficulty of trying to form this new entity called the church. Jews and Gentiles are not going to just come together naturally. In fact, it's only going to happen supernaturally. And so Paul does what we all must do when something is only going to happen supernaturally. He prays. And this is not just an, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you kind of prayer. He kneels. And I think it's really important here to notice that, to notice his posture because it gives us insight into his prayer. You see, the posture of our prayer makes a statement to God even before the words of our prayer. And I think there are at least two statements Paul makes through the posture of his prayer. First is the level of his respect, and second, the intensity of his request. The level of his respect and the intensity of his request. First, the level of his respect. A person who kneels does so to show great reverence. Listen, Paul has just shared some of the best news imaginable in verse 12. That in Christ and through faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Man, that's awesome news. We have been given both the freedom of access and the freedom of address when it comes to prayer. Both. We have the freedom of access. We can go to God anytime, 24-7, day and night. And we have the freedom of address. We can go to God and speak openly, freely, confidently. You see, the Romans here just think they have Paul in prison. They can lock him up in chains, but they cannot take away this freedom that he has been given, the freedom of access and the freedom of address in prayer to God. This is, we talked last week about having this incalculable wealth of Christ. It's the kind of wealth that you can't put a price tag on. There's no money that could purchase this kind of wealth. And this is part of that, this freedom of access and address in our prayer life with God, Paul celebrates this. But even with this freedom, Paul chooses to kneel before the Father. He has a heart of reverence, his level of respect. And then second, it's the intensity of his request. You know, kneeling is also a sign of great emotion and feeling. 
So what this tells us is that whatever he's praying about here is really, really important to him. I'm just going to assume that everybody in here spent a little bit of time praying this morning. What did you pray about? I want you to stop and think about it. What did you pray about this morning? Because, you see, we pray about what matters to us. If I were to look at a manuscript of your prayers over the past month, I would quickly learn about what matters to you. I I would learn your desires and your concerns and your anxieties. Because those are the things we pray about. And because we have this prayer, we know Paul's heart for the church. This is what concerns him the most. I, uh, I've learned quite a bit about the discipline of prayer through reading um, different authors, uh, but one who has influenced me is Beth Moore. She's an author, speaker. Um, she's written uh, and talks a lot about prayer. And one thing that she said that I've never forgotten is she says she's not really praying until she can smell the carpet fibers. That's good, because kneeling shows the intensity of the request. This really matters to Paul. And so he kneels, and he directs his prayer to the Father, from whom whole family in heaven and on earth derive its name. Now, that's quite a title. That's not the title I use when I pray to God every day. But that's the title that Paul uses here. And what's he getting at with this extended title? Well, Paul took a good look around him. He saw all the division, all the differences, all the walls of hostility in chapter 2. And this, this plan or this strategy of the church had been revealed to him. This plan is for every family in heaven and on earth to become part of his whole family through the church. The plan or the strategy is for every family in heaven and on earth to become part of his whole family through the church. And the work of the church is to bring together all the parts to form a whole. This is is the stated goal at the very beginning of the letter in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9 that the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's the will of the Father, and the Father is the head of the family. And Paul prays to the Father of this one whole family, Becoming one big family through the church. This kind of unity cannot happen through human effort. It will only come from God himself. It can only happen supernaturally. We're not going to purposefully get together with others who are different than us on our own. It's not how humans work naturally. 
We're not going to intentionally work through our differences and our divisions and the things that separate us on our own. Every family in heaven and on earth is only going to become part of his whole family by a movement of God through the church. And so Paul prays. This brings Paul to his knees. Through the church, every family is to become his whole family. Through the church, everything in heaven and on earth is to be brought together under one head. Now, if you're familiar with Ephesians or if you've been reading ahead a little bit, he's about ready to get real practical in chapter 4 about what this unity through the church looks like. It's pretty awesome stuff. But before he gets practical, he gets prayerful. Before he gets practical, he gets prayerful. And so here's his prayer for the church. Verse 19. Let me begin at the end of it and then work my way back. The prayer is for you all, plural, you, the church, to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't that a great prayer for our church? For us to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What would that look like? To be a church that's filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, when Paul talks about being filled to the measure with all the fullness of God, the place where this happens is here. It's happening right here in our innermost beings. Here's where the work of God must take place. Before we concern ourselves with doing anything outwardly, first, the great work of God must happen inwardly, right here. In verse 16, Paul prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is where it begins. It starts here. Paul refers to this inner life uh, as our inner being in verse 16, as our heart in verse 17, and these are synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. He's referring to that innermost part of us, that control center of our life. For the mystery of Christ to become the ministry of the church, for the manifold wisdom of God to be made known to the heavens through the church, first... We need to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner beings. And you know, here's what I've learned about the power of the Spirit. It seems to me that the Spirit is less in the business of performing some great work through you outwardly and more in the business of performing a great work in you inwardly. That's the power of the Spirit. Your inner being is the Spirit's playground. This is exactly what Paul's talking about back in verse 5. He says that this mystery of Christ was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. You see, the Holy Spirit 
gives us an inner sensitivity to the things of God. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit gives us an inner sensitivity to the works of God, to the fruit of God, to the truth of God, to the power of God. We are sensitized by the Spirit. And what kind of power exactly is the Spirit going to strengthen us with? Am I going to be able to bench press 300 pounds? No. That's not the kind of that's not the kind of strength. That's not the kind of power. It's in our inner beings. It's going to be the power of conviction. It's going to be the power of understanding. The power of compassion, the power of love, the power of inspiration, the power of encouragement. And so part of what it means to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that's that's the prayer for the church. That's Paul's heart for the church. Part of what that means, first of all, is, is to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner beings, to be sensitized by the spirit to the things of God. Second, it also means, in verse 17, to have Christ himself dwell in our hearts through faith. Wow. Let me repeat that. It also means to have Christ himself dwell in our hearts through faith. To be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God means to be sensitized in our inner being by the Holy Spirit, and it means to have Christ himself dwell in our hearts. Now, there are two primary words in the Greek used for dwelling. Perhaps you've heard this before, but this is really good news. One of these words is temporary. It literally means to inhabit a place as a stranger. The other word for dwelling is a permanent dwelling. It literally means to settle down somewhere as your permanent place of residence. And the word Paul uses here is the one for a permanent dwelling. It's made up of two words. The first word means to live, and the second word means down. And so it literally means to settle down. And that's such good news. It means that Jesus wants to settle down and make our heart his permanent residence. Listen, Jesus has not come into our hearts to just hang out when we feel like hanging out with him. He's not an invited guest. Are you following me? If I invited you to my house this afternoon and told you to make yourself at home, mikasa sukasa, as welcomed as you may feel, you would still not walk into my house and start rearranging the furniture. You're not going to do that. You're an invited guest. Jesus is not an invited guest. Your heart's not an Airbnb for Jesus. 
You're not just making space for him to come when you ask him to, but leave everything like it is. No. He has come to settle down permanently in your heart. And he's not going to leave everything like it was. He's come to rearrange the furniture. He's not coming as a guest. He's coming to live permanently. And what happens when you settle down somewhere permanently? You bring your stuff, right? I'm not going to just move into your house if I was going to do it permanently and live on your couch. I'm bringing my bed. I bring my stuff. I bring my books. I bring my things. You know, I remember uh, in college, uh, for several years, um, I had a waterbed. Man, I love that waterbed. <clears throat> How many people have had a waterbed at some point in their life? Yes, sir. I knew Kevin would. Um, man, waterbeds are great. A waterbed is like the thermos of beds because at least you, you can control the temperature on those things. And so in the summertime, you can make the water real cold. And so it's like you're sleeping on a ice, ice bag. And then, in the, and then in the wintertime, you can make it, the water real hot to where it almost like burns the skin when you're laying on it. Oh, man, I love that waterbed. Especially, it, it used to belong to my older brother. And as a, as a, I remember uh, wanting to always go in and spend the night in his bedroom with him so I could sleep on the waterbed with him. And he was always like twice my size, which was kind of funny because he would be down here and there's this little bubble that I would kind of sleep on. So when I slept with him in the waterbed, I was kind of on this little bubble, just hoping I wouldn't roll off the bed. But I love that waterbed. And every time I moved several times in college there into a new apartment, I had to let my roommates know that I was coming with my waterbed. Well, do you know what piece of furniture Jesus is going to show up with at the door of your heart? He wants to settle down permanently in your heart. And so this piece of furniture comes with him, and it's not a waterbed. It's a throne. It's a throne. Oh, Jesus is not an invited guest into your heart. He's not your buddy who shows up on Saturday night to crash on your couch and go with you to church on Sunday morning. Christ permanently dwells in your heart on his throne. And the permanent presence of Christ completely transforms your inner being. Full disclosure, some furniture is going to get rearranged. And so... Second, another part of what it means that that Paul's praying to be filled, for the church to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God is to have Christ himself dwell in our hearts through faith. So people who have been sensitized in their inner being through the Holy Spirit, people who have Christ permanently dwelling in their hearts on his throne, And then third, it also means, verses 18 and 19, that we may have power together with all the saints 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's this third part of being filled to the measure of all the fullness is to have the ability. And the key here is together with all of the saints to grasp the love of Christ. You see, you have to have the whole family of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, all of the varied backgrounds and experiences. You cannot grasp the love of Christ by yourself. The solo Christian can know something of the love of Jesus, but his grasp is going to be limited by his isolation. Love is one of those things that can only be understood, can only be known together with. And it's together with all the saints that we grasp the love of Christ. This is the third part of what it means to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And do you know what it means to grasp? This word translated grasp uh, in verse 18, uh, it's a word that, that can literally mean to wrestle. And so, what is it exactly that Paul is praying for us to do together with one another with the love of Christ. What does he mean to to kind of wrestle the love of Christ? Well, this love that's mentioned here in verse 17 and verse 18, it's that agape love, right? It's, you know, my favorite definition of agape is that it's love that seeks the highest good of another, That's agape love. And I cannot grasp what it means to seek the highest good of another by myself. That's not possible. I can only grasp this kind of love in community. And so how do we wrestle the love of Christ? Well, we don't wrestle with God. Paul's not praying that we all become like Jacob and wrestle with God. That's not, that's not what Paul's talking about. This is, this is why the third part of what it means to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, it's, it's, it's together with all the saints. We must wrestle the truths and the realities of the love of Christ together into our hearts. We want to, we want to grasp, we want to seize them. We want to wrestle them. We want to overtake them together and and wrestle them into our hearts. We want to convince ourselves of them. What's the remedy to living fearful, anxious, prideful, and ungrateful lives? The remedy is grasping the love of Christ. Wrestling the truths of the love of Christ into our hearts. We must speak to each other about it over and over and over again. We must speak it to one another 
over and over and over again. How wide is the love of Christ? It's as wide as the east is from the west. How long is the love of Christ? It's as long as the alpha is from the omega. How deep is the love of Christ? It's as deep as the deepest pit of hell. How high is the love of Christ? It's as high as the highest heights of the heavens. And we have to wrestle those truths into our hearts. We must fill one another. We must convince one another. We must proclaim that love over and over again until they wrestle their way down into our hearts, until we're filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge means to know more than just head knowledge. It means to know more than just doctrinal knowledge of the love of Christ. You see, I can go get books from all the great theologians that's ever written about the love of Christ, and I can read and read and read and read. And that'll only give me so much knowledge about the love of Christ. But the kind of knowledge here that Paul's praying about is knowledge that goes beyond that knowledge, knowledge that surpasses that knowledge, and it's the experiential love of Christ. It's the kind of love that can only be known and experienced together with all of the saints. So what a prayer. You know, if you have your Bibles open there, um, if you look ahead there to chapter 4, most Bibles have a little title above chapter 4. It should say something like, Unity in the Body of Christ. Listen, Paul's getting ready to bring it on the topic of unity. And he knows that the kind of unity he preaches about in Ephesians 4 through 6 can only happen among the kind of people he prays about in chapter 3. People who have been filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... This prayer, we thank you. Wow, what a, what a privilege it is to have this prayer journal, to know Paul's heart for the church. And, and Father, my, my prayer for us as a family um, is simply, it's, it's the same prayer as Paul's for the church in Ephesus, that you will fill us to the measure of all the fullness of God. Lord, do that great work in us. We're thankful for the church. What a, what a vision. And we pray that you just each day grow us as a body, as a family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.